And now, coming to you live from Helsinki, Finland, and Rock on 75, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf, the very special guest, Annalie Newitz, on the Cush Street Podcast! And here we are in Helsinki, enjoying what I, what are basically, well, never mind, the food here is, is great if I can find it. But anyway, welcome to the podcast, congratulations on Autonomous, which is a, an exciting new novel, and it's also a novel that sort of derives from a lot of technical stuff that you seem to know. <laughs> Where did you get all this background? Um, well, I, I'm a science journalist, mm-hmm. and so I'm really good at assimilating a lot of information and pretending to be an expert. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, when I started working on this novel, which deals with um, everything from patent law to neuroscience to mm-hmm. robotics... I forced a lot of people to talk to me about it and just mm-hmm. tell me what like what would a robot be like in 150 years. I mean, not that we can know that for mm-hmm. sure, but people could think about what was happening now and help me extrapolate in a way that wasn't just completely nuts. And that, that was kind of my goal was that if scientists or people who know about, say, biotech read this, they won't just, just smack their faces mm-hmm. with, you know, and be like, oh, this is totally based on goofy crap. Um so I did a lot of scientific research first, um, and then some of it was, especially the stuff about the society, that was basically, um, you know, as we say in the business, pulled out of my ass. I mean, yeah. it was based on observing the world around me and, yeah. and thinking about where we might be headed. But one of the things that impressed me about it is that a lot of people work hard to get the science right and don't work very hard to get the corporate stuff right. And so you must have looked at corporate law and the pharmaceutical industry in particular because a lot of what's happening in this novel is already happening. Yeah, and it it is true that, um, I mean, in a way, of course, all science fiction is about the present, Mm -hmm. and the pharmaceutical patent system really is broken. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was working at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, I did a lot of work, activist work around software patents, and so mm-hmm. I was somewhat familiar with how the patent system works already in that area. Uh, but to, to look at pharmaceutical patents and think about the future, I definitely did talk to patent lawyers mm-hmm. um, to think about how much more complicated patents might be in the future, because the way a patent is now, if you've patented something, you could theoretically go to the patent office, pull the patent, and look at it, and you wouldn't have to do a lot of work to recreate what's in the patent. I mean, mm-hmm. depending on your level of technical mm-hmm. expertise, you theoretically could just rip off the whole patent. You'd be sued, but mm-hmm. you could do it. Uh, but my character, Jack, who is the, the pharmaceutical pirate, um, she's actually taking the drugs and reverse engineering mm-hmm. them using scientific techniques. She's scanning them. She's using... Um, mass spectrometers and things like that to, to look at them and break down uh, their chemistry. And the reason why she has to do that is because the patent system has become so Byzantine at that point that you might look at a patent for a drug, but it would refer to other patents. It would refer to processes that are only available in expensive databases. Mm-hmm. And so, and I don't do any info dumping about that really in the novel. No. Kind of, I just kind of talk about it. Um, but that was kind of what I was thinking of as the framework, that it would just be ridiculously expensive. And so if you were going to be a patent pirate, you would really mm. not steal the patent. You would just take the drug itself and, and research the drug. Um, and so, yeah, I did a lot of thinking about that. And I also um, talked a lot to um, an economist. I talked to Noah Smith, who's a, mm-hmm. a really interesting uh, writer and economist. Um, and he helped me 
make the economics in the world much, much darker than they were. <laughs> I kind of went to him and I was like, look, I have this world with indenture, which is basically slavery. Mm-hmm. Like, how would we get there? You know, mm-hmm. I, I need an economic justification. I can't just like magically wave my wand and be like, well, because it's dark and dystopian, we have uh-huh. slavery. Um, and so we talked about it a lot and, and he was like, well, look, you know, I mean, we have a lot of rights we take for granted. You know, some of those rights include things like being able to live where you want, being mm-hmm. able to have a job at all is a right. And I hadn't ever thought about that because to, to me, like having to have a job is kind of onerous. Like that's mm-hmm. not like real. I don't feel like that's a right. I feel like that's kind of like a, a curse or something. Mm-hmm. But of course, if I didn't have the right um, to do that, uh, if mm-hmm. I had to sort of pay into a system or pay into a franchise in order to be allowed to work in a certain place, um, that would actually set up the conditions for things like indenture. Because mm-hmm. if I don't have enough money to pay to have the privilege to work, I got to sell myself to mm-hmm. someone else. Um, and so that's how I got the system in my book of indenture where people, they pay to join franchises, usually at the city level, but sometimes at the level of an economic zone. Um, and people get different kinds of special franchises for doing um, international trade. Uh, but so all of these characters, again, hopefully there's not too much info dumping about this in the book, but all of these characters are kind of struggling with how do they fit in? How do they how do they gain rights in a system where so few rights are given to you when you're born? And um, and like I said, it's a lot darker than I originally had it, thanks to thanks to economists' uh, um, expertise <laughs> in ruining the world. <laughs> I'm curious, having worked as a tech journalist and everything else, it, you can clearly see sort of where a strain of your career w- was going. You know, you'd worked through io9, written books that have been great. Where did you start as a, f- a fiction writer? When did you? Where did you start as a reader? Where did, when did, where did science fiction come to you? So I've been a huge, voracious science fiction reader uh, since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I discovered science fiction. Both my parents were English teachers, but they were lovers of literature, not so much science fiction writing. Um, my dad really liked science fiction movies, and he mm-hmm. took me to see Star Wars and uh, when I was a kid and took me to see all the Godzilla movies I wanted, which was great. Uh, but they, both my parents thought science fiction was kind of a crappy you know, it's not literature. They were English professors. They They were English teachers. Right, exactly. They were English teachers and um, uh, they weren't professors actually. My dad taught community college and my mom taught junior high and high school. Um, So they, when I was going to the library a lot when I was a kid, I discovered science fiction actually in this um, anthology called Mutants by Robert Silver, edited by Robert Silverberg Mm -hmm. and that got me hooked. And I basically read nothing but science fiction uh, for like about five years, sort of junior high and early high school, um, and uh, just weird, mind-blowing shit. There wasn't a lot of YA specifically at that time, so I was reading like the Martian Chronicles and stuff like that when I was like twelve, which was extremely disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was for a twelve-year-old. Um, so my parents were always pushing me not to read it, though. And so it was kind of this weird, dirty thing that I was doing. Did you ever get them to read it at all? Not really. Um, I think uh, toward the end of my father's life, he did read um, Philip Pullman's series, His Dark Materials, Mm -hmm. uh, which he really liked. He also really liked Lord of the Rings, actually. Uh, So maybe he was a bit more of a fantasy reader. Um, And he loved science fiction movies, like I said. Um, Mm -hmm. 
But no, they were not fans. And so it was funny because, um, like I said, it was kind of this dirty thing that I was doing as a teenager, along with all the other dirty things that Uh one does as a teenager. Um, And I kind of, when I went to college, I kind of rejected it for a while for in favor of literature and and rediscovered it um, in my 20s. And uh, and then got hooked again. Actually, it's all Ken McLeod's fault. I read a Ken McLeod novel, hmm. and it was and I was like, "Fuck, science fiction is awesome!" Because <laughs> it was so dense and political and um, and compassionate and interesting. Um, and so so I blame Ken McLeod. Um, and then uh, I still, in my own work, however, really just wanted to do nonfiction writing. I really mm-hmm. felt like. I wanted to write about what was actually happening in the world. I wanted to educate people about science and tech and so that people could better cope with, you know, what they were seeing happen around them and have a more scientific perspective. And, you know, things really started to change around 2008. Mm. Um, I feel like partly like the financial crisis, which no one understood. It became this incredibly complicated, almost technical uh problem for people um people started having incredibly sophisticated mobile devices that they didn't understand that were on their bodies that they were carrying around so it was a very intimate thing on their bodies that they didn't understand um it felt like there was an acceleration in um, scientific progress and at the same time that public discourse about it was really uh not adequate. Um, there was a rise in hostility towards science in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, something happened where I started to feel like the best way I could tell the truth about science and technology was to write fiction. And like I said, I'd always been reading science fiction except for that brief moment mm-hmm. where my parents kind of yeah. uh, dissuaded me. Um, and so I went from being a reader to being a writer. And mm-hmm. believe me, I wrote a lot of incredibly crappy stuff that the world will never see um, before I started publishing a few short stories. Uh, but I've always been novel-oriented. So I, my first thing that I really wanted to do was a novel. And um, I worked on Autonomous for about five years. So it was not like I just sort of picked up a you know keyboard and was like, sure. ta-da! Um, it took it took a while to get it right, and the the first draft was incredibly hideous and like just you know it was it was a piece of crap. Um, so it was really lucky that um, I had patient beta readers. <laughs> well, did you have science fiction teachers? You ever go to Clarion, for example? I did not go to Clarion. Um, when I was in college, I was a poet, so I mm-hmm. had some poet teachers. Um, I worked with Tom Gunn, who was an amazing hmm. British poet, um, and taught me a lot. The group like in the sixties. Yeah, he was he was an incredible um, teacher, and um, and he, he was not afraid to tell me I was full of shit, which was great. <laughs> um, which is hard when someone's writing a poem like this poem is full of shit, <laughs> like not because it's badly written. Like he would often say to me, like you can write, but you really need to work on what you are writing, the content of what you're writing, um, and that was actually super helpful. Um, but no, I've never had a formal science fiction yeah. teacher. Mm-hmm. I've just learned from reading. Sure. And from scientists, you know. Well, I'm, I'm curious. Angela uh, Harrison recently said that you know, science fiction isn't a payload; it's a delivery mechanism. Mm-hmm. Do you have a feeling for yourself, at least, about what science fiction is for, or what you can do with it? What, what makes it attractive to come to in the context you're talking about? Why it? I love that idea that it's a delivery mechanism. I think that uh, 
science fiction writing and and even science nonfiction writing are really sort of the culture wing of the scientific project. So I feel that we are definitely a part of um, the process of scientific discovery. Um, we're certainly not just secretaries sort of writing down what scientists mm-hmm. have discovered. We're also creating narratives about what will happen once scientific discoveries or technological uh, transfer, tra- technological innovations start um, changing our lives. And so, in fact, I think writers are just incredibly important to the scientific project because it's one thing to have an innovation, to have an ultra-fast uh, microchip, to have you know quantum computing um, or human-equivalent AI. It's another thing to think about how, you're, how people are going to use it. How, what are all the different ways that they might break it, that they might mm-hmm. deploy it, that you didn't expect? And, um, and I think that's what's important. And also, of course, science fiction writers inspire scientists. Sure. And so we can actually sneakily uh, even inspire the direction that science yeah. goes in. Mm-hmm. And I think it's still the case that we're doing that. And so um, that's what I hope it is, is that it's, it's a delivery mechanism in the sense that it's helping people see the world in a more scientific way. Uh, but also it's a kind of suggestion box for uh, people who are working in scientific discovery, too. I'm guessing that it's also, it's not just having uh, a means of seeing the world in a scientific way, but given certain scientific assumptions, seeing the social consequences of that. And one of the cliches of early science fiction, I don't know who said this originally, was that by 1900, everybody knew there were going to be lots of automobiles, but only science fiction writers knew there were going to be traffic jams. So what people do with the technology. One of the things that interests me, which is related to that, is science journalism has had this odd relationship with something between journalism and science fiction. The the futurists, the professional futurists, the World Future Society, uh, and to some extent economists are related to this. And they're all trying to project futures without essentially social narratives. In other words, uh, the... I used to subscribe to something called a futurist, the world suit. And they were always way off compared to what science fiction writers were doing because they were only thinking of this technology will lead to that technology. And the human factor was never there. The human factor is one of the things I think that science fiction has always inserted into that dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I think at its best that that's what science fiction is doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's always going to be science fiction that is kind of like the futurism that you're describing. They're like, well, given that we have, you know, ultra fast computers, obviously Mm -hmm. that means we're going to have, you know, genetic engineering that works just as well in two two years or whatever, uh, which is completely not true. Um, I think what what we do with science fiction is. As you said, we create human characters who are mm-hmm. actually using the devices. That's why, or, or the sciences. Um, I think like writers like Madeline Ashby are really interesting to me mm-hmm. because she works as a professional futurist. Um, and then she writes these very character-driven novels that are still just jam-packed with technology. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of her expertise. And I think futurism is becoming more like that, where we think about, so. well, if you have, yeah, I hope so too. Um, where you actually think about it from the individual person perspective, mm-hmm. and it's and you say, all right, well, if somebody had um, augmented uh, reality in their contact lenses, you know, what are the kinds of things they mm-hmm. would use it for? And you know, immediately the kind of future, the the crappy futurist perspective, right, would be like, 
well, they will use it to get directions and they will use it to fly planes. (laughs) And, you know, she's thinking about it as like they'll use it to mix drinks because Mm -hmm. they'll be able to see the temperature of what they're mixing and they'll they'll Mm -hmm. be able to, you know, see the chemical composition. And so, you know, there'll be all these applications that um, are very domestic and very individual. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, that's what I, I love seeing uh, in science fiction. I think Cory Doctorow does this really well, too, where he'll say, like, all right, we've got 3D printers. What are people going to do with them? Oh, they'll build ultralight bikes to drive yeah. around that'll just decay after a while. Uh, but it's great because bikes are really heavy, you know? Yeah. So you want, like, a bike that's just, like, yeah. spun up out of, like, spider web, basically. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that that is the strength of science fiction, is if you can get good characters, it really mm. does help you understand the science. When did you begin to feel that autonomous was coming together? Hmm. Probably, um, I mean, I really started working on it seriously about two years ago um, when, uh, you know, Tor Books um, kind of contacted me very casually and were like, mm-hmm. do you have anything that you might mm-hmm. be able to turn into a novel? And, um, uh and I did have autonomous sitting in a drawer in this like really horrific state. Uh, and I was like, well, let me get back to you after I revise this. Mm-hmm. And so then that was when I think the real writing started. I mean, yeah. it was done, but it was not good. Um, and so I completely um, actually focused on the characters. That mm-hmm. was, that was the thing that was really missing. I think I had the tech in place pretty well. Um, I had really thought a lot about the world but the characters were just their motivations were dumb. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The character Paladin, who is uh, the robot character, I hadn't thought at all about his consciousness. I mm-hmm. had just sort of the characters were kind of like Martin Scorsese characters. They were just going around mm-hmm. killing people, and I kind of had started out wanting that. I was like, yeah. I love Martin Scorsese, and I was like, all right, they're just like killing, and then they're having like muscular conversations, and then they're like <laughs> killing some more. And, um, and there was no kind of compassion. There was no reason you would want to read about them unless you were just, like, a huge Martin Scorsese fan <laughs> um, and for some reason wanted to read a novel that was written in that style. Um, so I really... The vast majority of the work was was coming up with what it, what Paladin was thinking and what it would feel mm-hmm. like to be him or her and what... Um, what kind of confusion he would have dealing with humans. And I came up with all of the kind of weird dialogue that you see in the book, which is basically it's sort of based on Unix and how mm. computers, networked computers talk to each other um, and how, um, you know, TCP IP works and uh, which in the future, I'm sure they'll have much more sophisticated networks, but I, that's, mm. I've sort of imagined that that kind of language where computers kind of announce to each other, hello, this is who I am, here comes my data, here's the kind of data it is, I've you know, divided it up into a bunch of different packets of this particular size. I, and I was like, well, what would that be like to have that be your brain? That that's what you're thinking. And, and you're running all these utilities that you can't modify, that are mm-hmm. kind of controlling your behavior. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh, it's just like being a person where you're running all of these desires and needs and wants that you can't control or change and you don't know where they come from. And you're like, wow, I feel strangely driven to do this thing. And why am I doing it? And therapy is sort of helping, but not really. Um, so, um, so, so that was like kind of the pleasure and the pain of, of having it come together. One of the interesting experiences of reading that uh, dialogue between computers you're talking about with formal uh, signatures and and and, and uh, it's actually I, I first encountered this reading Greg Egan, 
which is you're reading what amounts to a page of dialogue, and then you realize this is probably a couple of microseconds of real time. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and yet you have to represent. So, uh, and it, it, it works fine once you realize that. But then I wonder if you've had it, we don't, we don't know what the reader response is, if you get people thinking these computers are actually talking to each other over the phone or something and saying these sentences, but they're not. Um, no, they're, and in fact, um, I talk about the, the robots um, tuning each other because mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're talking over microwave or, or some radio wave, um, uh, perhaps some chunk of spectrum that we aren't using yet. Um, and they are, I do have moments where I try to remind the reader that, that they are thinking very quickly. And I'll mm-hmm. say, you know, Paladin had been thinking about this for a few seconds. Yeah. Um, and it's, Ooh. and there's been like four pages of Paladin, mm-hmm. like agonizing over human sexuality. And it's like, for a few seconds, he pondered the mysteries of human sexuality. Um, and so, uh, I have had readers notice that and say like, oh yeah, okay, you threw that in there. And, um, and people who work with computers a lot are very excited. And then people who don't work with computers a lot, I'm not sure what they're going to be thinking. I think probably they'll pick up on some stuff and then some of it hopefully... It, hopefully you don't need to have a, a technical background to get yeah. it. You know, you I can don't. either notice it or not no. notice it. And I don't have a technical background. I mean, uh, and it's possible to read this. I didn't realize this until I was talking to Hanu Rayanyemi, who can get pretty dense with his... He's got a lot of friends uh, who are not computer people and not science fiction people. He said they were just reading these passages as prose poetry. It sounded kind of cool, so they'd let it go and figure it must mean something, but it's not my problem. Yeah, and that's what I I love that about Hanu's work, Mm -hmm. and and Egan's work too. I think Mm -hmm. that Egan does a great job of that, and I think that's hopefully where where writing that's very scientific succeeds, is that Mm -hmm. it works both as a kind of tip of the hat to people who get it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't get it, it's still, um, it has a kind of allegorical meaning right. or it has a kind of metaphorical charge. And that was kind of what I was trying to do is have the most scientifically accurate metaphors possible for consciousness. Um, and uh, and so that's like the fun for me is, mm-hmm. is trying to do that and make sure that, that the audience isn't just like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so I'm sure some people will do that. Um, but actually the main complaint I've seen on Goodreads, which I know I should not read Goodreads, um, is not about the science, but about the fact that um, there's no obvious good guy and no obvious bad guy. And sometimes people find that very sad. So, Well, you know, that's the challenge of reading literature. Yeah. I described the book to a friend of mine earlier, and he came back and said, so basically it's Captain Nemo meets Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I'll take it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what was your ele- elevator pitch for it? Well, so I had a really hard time with... This has actually been, like, haunting me. My <laughs> elevator pitch is, like, for, like, a really... Like, for the space elevator, basically. It's, like, you know, it would take you, like, three days to, to get from Earth to the counterweight on the space elevator. And by that time, I would have explained the book to you. Um, <laughs> but mostly I was saying um, it started out... Actually, the original title was Pirate vs. Robot. Because I originally just wanted to write about a pirate and a robot. Um, And my elevator pitch was basically, um, you know, in the future, uh, you know, there's a pharmaceutical pirate who's who's made this mistake. Um, She's kind of a Robin Hood figure, um, but she's done something that's not very Robin Hood-like and gotten caught. And that she's being pursued by a robot who's kind of coming of age. Um, Mm -hmm. He's just come online about three months before the events take place in the book. And he's, he's very much like a young adult, uh, maybe not quite a teenager, maybe a little bit past that, 
um, maybe kind of a college student type uh, consciousness, um, trying to just figure out his place in the world while he's on this mission to murder someone, mm-hmm. which is a hard thing to do, to come come to consciousness and instantly be told your first job is to murder someone. Um, and so what does that feel like to, to be in that situation? Um, so that... I, I, he's a military robot, which means he doesn't have all the functions that... I mean, the title actually becomes more and more important in terms of the paladin character because autonomous is a goal for him. It's something that he might eventually, uh, or she might eventually work to, which raises the other issue. We were talking about this briefly last night. Uh, this is a robot that has, uh, we discover partway through the novel, uh, part of a human brain, and it's it's a female brain. And uh, the robot's companion, it's interesting because the robot's twilight companion is an old tiny there's a a whole subgenre of stories of robots who want to be human one of the best is Roger Zelazny's For a Breath I Terry but this one actually deals with a human relationship uh, that is sexualized Um, I don't think this is a spoiler is is mentioning pronouns a spoiler I've been wondering that too (laughs) I am super bad knowing what's a spoiler so I I think let's just talk about it yeah it's it's more of a character arc mm. It's a character arc, and uh, we discover that the portion of the brain inside this militarized robot is uh, a female brain. And the robot's companion, who has already become more or less turned on by him, now is sort of, oh, cool, it's a woman. And, and, and the pronoun shifts. So, so this guy, so the whole issue of gender is a, is a, seems to me a major sub-theme because uh, robots are, by definition, genderless. But this guy refuses to accept that. Yeah, Paladin's um, partner, who is mm-hmm. also uh, employed by the military, um, his name is Elias, and he's he ha- he's attracted to Paladin, mm-hmm. but he he has a lot of um, he's grown he's grown up in a very homophobic society. Mm-hmm. Elias has uh, he's he's from the Eurozone, but he's a, he's from a part of Europe that's still kind of Catholic. And um, he's had a lot of... Um, I, I deal with this a little bit in the novel about his backstory. And so he, um, you know, he's partnered with Paladin. He's attracted to Paladin. But because Paladin is a military robot, all of the humans just call Paladin mm-hmm. he. And it's just a kind of... The way we call ships she. Yeah. Um, it's just because Paladin looks so bulky and macho and is like... Basically, Paladin is kind of modeled on a mecha from, um, from anime, specifically Appleseed. Because uh, I love Appleseed, and um, and there's some pretty sexy mecha in Appleseed, and um, and so uh, Paladin doesn't really care about pronouns because, mm-hmm. as you say, robots uh, in this story, um, there's some robots that want to have a pronoun, some mm-hmm. don't care, some feel really strongly, but it's not as relevant to robot culture as it is to human culture. Humans are like really into this whole, you know. You have to have a pronoun. It has to designate a gender, and that that actually means something. Like that, if you're if you're a he, it means something about you. If you're a she, it means something about you. For Paladin, Paladin's going to be Paladin, no matter if you call Paladin it or right. he or she. Um, but because Elias is so conflicted about um, his sexuality, he's not comfortable expressing his um, attraction to Paladin mm-hmm. because he thinks Paladin is a he, right. and. Um, when Paladin discovers that the brain in his body is from a woman, uh, even though he doesn't really use the brain for anything more than just sort of like a, a visual, it's like visual processing, basically. He uses it for like computer, you know, for facial recognition, um, which it turns out is actually not 
super technically accurate because oh, really? computer. Well, computers actually are pretty good at facial recognition. Yeah, it used to be. I mean, that was that was the one problem. Yeah, and there. and what I kind of imagined was that it wasn't just about recognizing faces, but recognizing expressions. Ah, and so okay. it's a way that Paladin processes emotional information from mm-hmm. people's faces. Um, but also, the brain is kind of just a gimmick. It just makes Paladin seem cooler and mm-hmm. so more expensive, and therefore the military you know, paid a bit more for Paladin because of this brain. So when, um, when Elias realizes that the brain is female, he decides to ask Paladin, um, well, do you want me to call you she mm-hmm. or he? And um, it's an interesting moment. It was a very tough scene to write. Mm-hmm. I rewrote it many times because Paladin chooses to say yes. And what's really important to, to say yes, call me she. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the rest of the book, Paladin is, a, is she. Um, the important thing about that scene is that because Paladin has been programmed by people who don't think about questions like that, mm-hmm. he's never been programmed with a response to that question. So... Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like if you're talking to a bot and the bot has all the right answers to math questions and then you ask the bot, are you he or she? And the bot's like, what? Uh-huh. Um, so because Paladin has never been given that programming, it's the first time in Paladin's life when he's actually been able to make a totally independent decision, hmm. not based on any programming. And so what's significant to Paladin is, oh my God, this person just gave me a decision. But what's important to Elias is, like, all right, it's a lady. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay now. It's okay now. And I I really wanted to play with that idea of, you know, those two different perspectives. It's meaningful to both of them. Both of Mm -hmm. them feel intense romantic um, connection in that moment because they've each given each other this kind of gift. But they're seeing it from very different angles. But it winds up being fine because they, they both kind of agree somehow, like, you know, all right, well, Paladin's going to be a she, even though Paladin is completely the same, mm-hmm. looks completely the same. And I think that Paladin, Elias doesn't realize this, but I think that Paladin kind of falls in love with Elias because Elias gives him a choice about what gender to be. You know, just says, all right, well, which one do you want to be? Um, and Paladin gets to pick one. Um, and, and, of course, because Paladin wants to get laid, picks the gender that, you know, Elias is most excited about. <laughs> right, exactly. um, so, you know, there's a little bit of strategizing going on. Um, but so I really, yeah, I, I feel like with gender among humans, there's so much weird fetishization of, like, individual organs. Like, this organ means that you're she. And so I wanted to kind of mix it up and be like, actually, they're fetishizing brains for some reason mm-hmm. in this, well, in this but, story. Which is a way of saying that Paladin is not, although there's a connection that's easy to make, the Paladin is not Helva from um, Anne McCaffrey's The Ship Who Sang, who clearly was a woman who falls in love with the first captain of the ship who refers to her as her rather than it so it's it's and that was a, a what 1970 or something that was a very traditionally gendered romance really mm-hmm. um, but it still was the same idea that the, the the brain gains an identity by how people outside it perceive it yeah and I and I mean the ship who's saying is, is a book that I love and definitely mm-hmm. you know is a kind of influence and I think that the similarity is that it's about a person recognizing a machine as a person yes. and mm-hmm. seeing the person in them and because because part of the way humans recognize personhood is through gender that that mm-hmm. is part of what happens for humans it's like if i can see a machine as a her or a him that helps me as a human mm-hmm. identify with them as a person uh, but to a robot 
that's not an issue. Robots have other re, other ways of recognizing each other as people. Um, and so um, it's kind of, they have this kind of, it's almost like a mistranslation that turns out okay in the end, hmm. in their relationship. <laughs> You've been a long-time reader of science fiction. You've been close to the field for a long time. You're you know, obviously intimately involved with editor-in-chief for IO9. You're launching Autonomous out into the world in September of 2017. Where do you think science fiction's at? <laughs> um, well, I've actually been thinking about this um, a lot, uh, especially here at Worldcon, because I've been getting into some pretty interesting conversations with people about that. Um, so this book has been called Cyberpunk by uh, a few uh, early readers, and... Um, I don't. I don't think terms like cyberpunk necessarily fit anymore for science fiction. Um, I think we're science fiction has a lot of genre baggage around mm-hmm. the word punk. We have every kind of punk: clock punk, steampunk, cyberpunk, um, and then we have also have a lot of opera type things. We have space opera, and then I'm sure there's other kinds of opera. I don't know, neuro opera. I don't know. Don't don't say it because somebody will do it. Yeah, um, and I think that there's, I mean, in a way, like, there's almost like, and then there's fantasy, and I think mm-hmm. now we're getting things like science fantasy, or what kind of gets called hard fantasy, which is just a way of saying it's fantasy that seems realistic. Right. Um, and I think there's kind of a tension in science fiction now between um, basically a kind of realism, which I think is what cyberpunk was supposed to be mm-hmm. basically about, it was like, we're going to try to have a lot of the trappings of literary realism and naturalism brought into science fiction. So we'll have kind of hard-hitting characters. We'll have things that just seem very realistic socially, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like golden age science fiction, which is often like, we have a fantastical world with the spaceships or whatever. The scarcity science fiction, you know, which which is still around. Yeah, but Golden Age is very much blue-collar science fiction. Yeah, Whereas, you know, Cyberpunk was the street. It was sort of that decayed. It was urban. Yeah. yeah it was, like, in urban settings. Um, and, I mean, it's interesting to contrast it with things like um, Asimov's iRobot mm-hmm. uh, collection, which, of course, I was thinking about a lot while I was mm-hmm. writing, um, uh, as well as Astro Boy, which is kind of Japan's <laughs> version of, of iRobot. Um and and also, you know, Astro Boy has has laws of robotics as well, uh, which are very different from mm-hmm. Asimov's laws. And uh, that setting is not very realistic, like in Asimov. The one thing that is realistic mm-hmm. is that there's somebody who's kind of been assigned to think about robot. Um, like one person is and who's a woman is working on robot psychology, right? So she's right. been so like we've this one incredibly important thing. Uh, which nobody wants to think about has been given to a woman. She's probably really underpaid. There's probably a bunch of engineers who are paid way better than <laughs> her uh, to design the robots. Um, and then, but now when we have stories about robots, like I said, I think there's this strand of kind of much more gritty realism that we get um, in in TV as well as in novels. So where is it going? Um, I think that we're seeing uh, more interest in. Um, social and economic world building uh, Hmm. to go along with kind of our awesome gadgets and our amazing science. Um, 
I've been uh, really interested to see writers like Malka Older um, doing mm. basically incredibly technically int- like writing about incredibly interesting technology. But part of the uh, fascination of her world is that the social relationships are so complicated and well thought out. Mm. Like she invented this idea of micro democracy. And it actually makes a lot of sense. It's, it, it, mm-hmm. You can actually understand how it works. It's a very um, plausible scenario. Um, and I think um, on, the, on the sort of fantasy side, you have people um, like Max Gladstone doing the craft sequence, right. which are also, even though there's gods and there's gargoyles and people are um, you know, fighting with magic... Uh, there's this sense again of social realism there. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there's contracts that have mm-hmm. to be kept, and there's you know um, legal battles, and there's um, you know property rights and inheritance. And so I think that that kind of aspect of social realism is coming into science fiction in a way that um, is pretty exciting. And also, just looking at um, humans and machines as kind of merging with each other as opposed to the machines being out there, the robots being out there and we're Mm -hmm. over here that there's much more of a kind of, um, squishing together, um, that you see in like Madeline Ashby's work, for example, um, which is not in Asimov. Like you never see a human merged with a robot. In, in well, I, mean, yeah, I, I think Asimov's worldview. I mean, some of the stories in iRobot are 1950s suburbs with robots, or downtown Manhattan with robots. Or detective but, stories. Or detective with stories robots. with robots. Yeah. And one of the interesting things you do is, 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 is well, not you only. That science fiction is really is rethinking the idea of urbanization, for example, which goes to the geography of autonomous because you've got. I forgot the island in northern Canada where a lot of it. It's, it's a kind of Baffin Island. Baffin Island, and then the north end of Baffin Island, which normalists you know, we associate with uh, <coughs> lost ships like the Terror and so forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the idea that parts of the world that we hadn't thought about could be kind of tech hubs uh, is an interesting way of rethinking. Um, the, the notion of, of of urbanization and labor and where that labor is located and how it functions. Yeah, I love thinking about that stuff. Like, I love thinking about cities of the future and where labor is going to take place mm-hmm. and um, trying to map that out. And um, uh, I think there that also is a is a trend in science fiction, especially now that we're you know a majority mm-hmm. urban civilization. And um, uh, Tobias Buckle's um, novel Arctic Rising, um, it's actually a duology, mm-hmm. uh, does an amazing job of thinking about geopolitics in right. that way, because um, he he's sort of imagining not just okay the ice has melted, which is mm-hmm. sort of the you know Kim Stanley Robinson thing, like okay we'll look at the sort of it's you know geoscience, yeah, right. um, but he he's like well what are what are the political structures that will live on top of that? Like yep. okay the ice is gone, so who's going to move in? Mm-hmm. And um, and in his World, you know, a lot of um, people move into the space that's vacated by the ice who are like basically from developing nations, and mm-hmm. this allows them to have much better economic development, they gain wealth, they gain independence. And so, when you have 
environmentalists coming in and saying like we want to rebuild the ice we want to put uh, the ice yeah. back it's really complicated because mm. now there's people living exactly. there and, and, and it raises the whole issue which is again a very contemporary issue is, is global warming and rising sea levels going to create new frontiers and new opportunities which is probably true and to some extent Stan Robinson even acknowledges that in New York 2140 yeah, yeah. he definitely does I mean he, he I, I didn't mean to sort of you know no, say no, that he no. wasn't thinking about that but I think that he he's a very interested in kind of the earth processes that mm. are involved I mean I love his work so much God um, but anyway uh, 2312 is like so amazing. Um, I love when he's like shooting bubbles full of wolves at the planet to like, <laughs> repopulate um, the to sort of de-extinct wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm never going to forget that image. Um, so, uh, but I think it's interesting to think about the social networks and the mm-hmm. social and economic systems that are going to grow up around these kinds of um, physical transformations in the planet. And of course, as we colonize other planets too. Um, which is why The Expanse is such an exciting series, TV series and, mm. and book series as well, because they're thinking about geopolitics, um, you know, projected onto colonizing the asteroid belt and colonizing mm. Mars and how those would become political issues. Um, so, yeah, I love the belters. I think it's an obvious follow-on question for what you just said, as you were saying. We've talked a lot about <clears throat> print science fiction, mm-hmm. um, and traditionally, when science fiction has been adapted for media, it has been a very simplistic kind of science fiction of adapted. Not always, but mm. mostly. It's certainly not the most popular level. Do you think that's changing with things like The Expanse, and do you see it changing further, that the world's willing to engage with more complex and engaged kinds of stories about the world we're going to live in? I definitely, I think that's true. And part of it is that now, um, with the rise of streaming television, you mm-hmm. have that opportunity to tell a story that's much longer, but that people can consume more quickly than mm-hmm. on a weekly basis. Um, I do think The Expanse is a great example of that. Um, probably the turning point uh, for for science fiction on TV. Um, was the new Battlestar Galactica yeah. series. Yeah. I, I mean, you can also trace it back to, like, well, even Star Trek was actually sure. pretty well, damn nuanced for its time, you know? Yeah, and yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Next Generation fan. Like, that was kind of... Watching Next Generation is mm. what brought me back to science fiction from literature because um, it is pretty darn nuanced sometimes. Um, <laughs> not always. Um, but I think that Battlestar Galactica, it got a mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got people interested in the politics and um, social issues as well as the cool space battles and the robots. Um, and now we have just this huge boom. We have The Expanse, which is lovely. We have Westworld, which I have many, many feelings mm-hmm. about. Um, it's great, but it also is kind of flawed. Um, we had shows like Person of Interest, um, which is the Jonah Nolan show, mm-hmm. the show that Jonah Nolan did before um, Westworld. Um, and and that was kind of a mainstream phenomenon. And then we have things like Handmaid's Tale uh, now, which has become a huge phenomenon. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, partly because of successes like, well, critical successes like Battlestar, but also just generally because TV is getting much weirder and more mm. um, complicated. So even, um, you know, shows like The Sopranos, for example, are part of what's making it easier for people to have complicated science fiction. Um, and people just expect, I think audiences for television are kind of like novel reading audiences now. There's a much bigger crossover. But isn't part of that due to, you mentioned the multiplicity of streaming services, and before that, the arrival of cable and multiple channels, 
the Battlestar Galactica in its new incarnation didn't have to do what Star Trek had to do in the 60s, where there were three networks and you had to get the proportion of the... Now you don't need anywhere near that many viewers to sustain a successful series. Yeah, we're kind of in a weird phase with television. Um, I mean, you know, there's, I think, in sheer numbers, there's more television series on Mm -hmm. now across all, you know, services and networks than ever before in history. And it's not just because there's more people. It's just because there's more funding for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just more services competing um, to put out content. Um, So they don't have to gain as much audience. Um, But also, it reminds me of kind of the sort of the pulp age of science fiction when it was really cheap to put Mm. out paperbacks and the volume was enormous and people could really make money by the word writing short stories writing novels and you just churn them out and like a lot of them a lot of them no but i mean that's like tv too right you're writing a lot of stuff a lot of episodes Mm -hmm. like you're not coming in and like carefully crafting Mm. like one little thing you're like all right we got you know, I'm sitting in a writer's room. I've got four months to churn mm-hmm. out like 23 episodes or you know 10 episodes, depending on where you're where you're aiming for. So I think that's kind of where we're at. Is that television has become sort of the pulp science fiction of like say the that's 1940s or 50s? Um, because at that time, um, you could just walk into a drugstore and there'd be like a zillion books yeah, there. Course, the way yeah. now, there's like DVDs or. Right. Um, so I think, um, and that's great. Uh, I love that. I mean, we are getting some really amazing stuff. Um, and, you know, hopefully it's going to light people's imaginations on fire instead of Would you want Autonomous to be made into a limited series? I'm open to anything. Um, you know, I mean, if, if someone wants to do it, you know, I can imagine a lot of ways it could be done. Um, I think that um, there has been, you know, some interest, obviously. You know, oh, sure. Um, if, if anything big were happening, I would tell you. But um, uh, I think that it would require an effects budget, which is a bit of a barrier. Um, but there's ways you could get around that. You don't have to make it really spectacular. And, you know, you could... Uh, you know, Paladin doesn't have to be that awesome. Um, mm. So, uh, I mean, I prefer it if Paladin <laughs> is super cool. Um, I think I actually think Autonomous would make a great anime. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see yeah. an animated version because um, I think that would solve a lot of the problems with um, with effects. Uh, and of course, like I said, Paladin is based on anime. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think it would be could be cool. I mean, not saying no. Um, you know? I guess one of the things that that uh, I mean, you, you mentioned the uh, the idea of the extended form, the long form, which was not available uh, because it, it and again going back to Star Trek, which of course failed by earning audience numbers that anybody would kill for by today's yeah. standards, was uh, also a series. It wasn't really allowed to accept one or two two or three episode arcs. It had to be a new episode of. So now you can actually tell a story like The Expanse. Like the like the uh, new Battlestar Galactica, which is the only way to adapt a novel to media I've ever seen. The problem, one of the problems with science fiction movies, is that you can't do a science fiction novel in two and a half hours. If you have a Ted Chiang short story, that makes a pretty good movie. Yeah. Uh, because you're dealing with a lot of opportunities to expand the material. Yeah, and I mean, and basically, Arrival had just enough space to almost do justice to the mm-hmm. original short story, which is quite complicated, and there's yeah, a lot yeah. of stuff going on, um, and it really it like perfectly fit in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I think that now it is easier to have a kind of um, a space opera type story um, that's uh, not just episodic. Like Star mm-hmm. Star Trek was very right. has always been very episodic. Yeah. Although I guess the new series Star Trek Discovery, which now we're going to all be calling STD, which is really oh, dear. sad <laughs> and unfortunate. Someone pointed that out to me just a few days ago, and I was like, oh, I no. can't yeah. I know, and it's it's real. It's out there. So STD is going to be um, much more um, of a of a kind of narrative arc. Over, so yeah. there's going to be it's not going to be as episodic. It's going to be like an ongoing through line for the season. So that's an interesting. I mean, that is completely a result of the fact that that's what audiences expect now. They don't really want that episodic. Wonder if something back to Babylon Five also. Because that was essentially a five-year arc, I think, in, in Joe Straczynski's original co- concept, and that's what it turned out to be. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that that's actually an incredibly good point. I mean, I think it, it isn't hailed as often as being the game-changing mm-hmm. show that it was, but like a ton of people worked on that show who went on to went do on, this yeah. kind of um, TV that we're talking about. Um, and uh, and it was it was not episodic. It was an arc that mm-hmm. you had to follow from the beginning, um, which makes it a bit of a slog, especially in the first season. But um, <laughs> but it's worth it in the end. Um, so yeah, I think that that's uh, we are seeing that shift um, to, away from episodic sci-fi to kind of viewing it as like a sweeping arc, much more like a soap opera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a reason we called them space operas back in the day. So when when was the term space opera coined? 1941. Yeah, 41. Wilson Tucker uh, coined it based on horse operas, which was a contemptuous term for westerns, which in turn was based on soap, soap operas, operas, which was based on the sponsors of radio drama. What is the mm-hmm. hacking, grinding, old yeah, uh, horse operas? Worn out, old, old, old fashioned. So I mean, it was really a. a, a a term of dismissal. Oh yeah, it's mm-hmm. derision because it's like it's a double derision because soap operas were a women's genre, which is like mm-hmm. automatically lame. And then you know, in the in the thinking of the day, and perhaps even now, mm. um, and uh, and then of course you yeah, have horse opera, like which Westerns. is considered a men's thing. In other words, it was, yeah, they, they were both like dismissing half of the population because they like this kind of storytelling. Yeah, that's funny. Oh. I hadn't thought about oh. how that... Yeah, it's like, it's basically like crappy men's fiction, like, crappy right, women's right, fiction right. merged together to create to science fiction. Right, exactly. That's why I love science fiction so much. Because um, I love Westerns, actually. I mean, I think all of us do, with our all of us with right minds. Um, so, yeah. I'm curious as well. Uh, um, we're sort of tinkling towards the end of mm-hmm. I'm cur- curious. Do you feel like you're part of the generation of writers? Are there people you identify as being in your mind, your peers, now that you're really moving into fiction? Um, I mean, that's a really hard question. I I often shy away from thinking generationally because I I think there's these kind of broader historical trends. And in my science writing life, I write a lot mm-hmm. about archaeology, so I'm like, well, I'm part of you know a thousand year trend. <laughs> I think I'm part of. Um, I think it's less of a generational trend and more of a um, a subgenre really in science fiction. Uh, there's kind of two subgenres that I I feel like I'm part of. One is what I talked about a little bit earlier, thinking about kind of the social realism part of science fiction. Um, and then also, um, you know, the side of science fiction that I grew up with in the seventies, which was just like, let's have sex with aliens and robots. And like, mm-hmm. I feel like in the seventies, like there was all this science fiction I read, like when I was growing up at a very impressionable age, um, where there was just a lot of, um, 
exploration of how characters would have very human, um, ordinary relationships in bizarre, extraordinary circumstances. And I definitely blame mm. Robert Silverberg. I blame <laughs> John Varley. Um, I blame Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin. Um, and I think, and Chip Delaney, like he's totally mm. blamed. Um, and I think that that, uh, that kind of science fiction is to answer that earlier question, I think that's coming back into vogue now. Mm-hmm. This kind of like mm-hmm. crazy, um, like glam style science fiction, like a pre-punk era, where um, you know it's like, hey, we met some aliens. How do we like hook up? Like, right. where do we find the party? You know, like, and which I think is is very true of how people behave. Like, you go to a new city, you go to a new place, and, like, of course you want to know where the post office is and mm-hmm. how to go to the bathroom, but you also want to know, like, where's the bar? Like, yeah. where are people hanging out? How do I meet friends? Um, it doesn't have to be sexual hookups. It can just be, like, a completely, you know, gray hookup. Um, we'll have cake together kind of thing. Um, and so, I guess... And that kind of fits with social science fiction. It's just sort of about how we form relationships. Um, and I think, um, like, the novel... Um, a long way to a small angry planet. I got the title right. Ah, Apparently, wow. Becky Chambers doesn't always get the title right uh-huh. when she says it. Um, but that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Is that that kind of idea of like having a kind of um, science informed romp that has some actually quite realistic, um, you know, economic and social issues, but it's also about just making friends and mm-hmm. and meeting aliens and finding out how their weird planets work and how their cultures do things. Um, you know, kind of at the domestic level as well as at the political level. Like, how do you guys live together? How do you make families? Like, you know, I don't care about the king. I want to know mm-hmm. what's happening in the kitchen, you know? That could be a shift in uh, in generation as well. And, and actually what you were saying is also well described by the title of, of, of Charles Hughes' novel, How to Live Safely in a, a Science Fictional Universe. Because what I'm, what I'm sensing, and I'm sensing this with... Uh, uh, writers who are not necessarily genre writers, and I don't mean uh, the Margaret Atwoods of the world, but I do mean the Michael Chabons or the Brian Evansons of the world, who never would have thought of themselves of inhabit- as inhabiting science fiction, but who are comfortable with having bits of science fiction inhabit their work. Uh, so it becomes a resource rather than a um, defining career, I guess. And, and I think that's exciting. I think science fiction is now available to general writers in a way it may not have been even 10 years ago. Yeah, well, I definitely think it's true that science fiction is becoming part of fiction, mm. you know, because we live in a very scientific and technical world. And so if you want to just write about reality, mm. um, you have to bring it in. I mean, Charlie Yu, I mean, his his novel, of course, it does deal with the sort of domestic, oh, yeah, exactly. you know, so. side of these things. But it's also very fantastical as well. Mm. So that's one of the things I love about it is that it's kind of magic realist almost. Um, there's a great novel coming out uh, by Maggie Shen King. Um, which is called An Excess Mail. It's coming out next month, I think, um, mm-hmm. which would be September 2017, <laughs> for those listening yeah. far in the future. Um, and she does the same thing where she's... It's a very literary novel. Um, it's, I believe it's coming out from a, a literary publisher. and mm-hmm. um, But she's dealing with the near future in China, with the demographic shift where there's more um, men than women. And she's focused on this domestic space where a woman has been the Chinese government has allowed women to marry multiple men in order Mm -hmm. to deal with this demographic problem. And it's just all about how do they navigate that. But technology is a huge part of the novel. Mm. I don't want to give spoilers, but like deals a lot with the surveillance state. So it's very much about tech, 
but it's also mm-hmm. what's happening in this family in this house and um and it's just it's so interesting and uh so again i don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's just a, a shift uh in in interest but um that's that's definitely uh check that novel out I, i'm willing to bet it's not going to be marketed as science fiction at all yeah i don't know it's hard to know these days there's much less of a a stigma and quite often a benefit at least marketing you know, you know cross purpose or cross way mm-hmm. you, you pick up both audiences but it sounds like the kind of book that would read easily it sounds like yeah. yeah I mean it's, it's being compared to The Handmaid's Tale which is another one of those kinds I mean it's not yeah. it actually is quite different in many ways but um, <laughs> but I mean it's yeah it's a gender dystopia this year I guess. pretty much everything is compared to A Handmaid's Tale I know that's right yeah it's like Moby Dick is a lot like A Handmaid's Tale it's a narrative <laughs> it's a narrative yeah. um, I'm ready for like the Moby Dick strand in science fiction it's like one of my favorite novels <laughs> Ray Bradbury wrote a radio play uh which I it has been produced. I don't think he, I don't know if he ever published it. Probably everything, but it was Leviathan '99 about a space captain whose arm was burned off by a comet. It's Bradbury's level of understanding science, obviously. But it was <laughs> I read it. It was kind of fun. It was just fun as fantasy with some some words that sound like science fiction words. Other than that, it's a complete fairy tale. <laughs> I'm, I'm, okay, I'm curious. Probably right now, even as we speak, copies of Autonomous are shipping out to bookstores. Mm-hmm. You're about to move into a situation where, like, you know, it's real. It, you, you know, you're a debut novel. I'm getting, like, more nervous as you talk. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there will okay. be all the reviews and all that fun mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> but as anyone who's ever done one thing knows, the only question anybody ultimately ever asks is, what's next? Um, so... I'm working on a second novel for Tor. Um, I signed a two-book contract, so they're mm-hmm. forced to publish my next novel. Well, I guess not forced. They could mm-hmm. probably, they, yeah. If it was really, really terrible, they wouldn't publish it. Um, so I've just started work on that, and um, it's a time travel novel. Um, it's kind of about um, set partly in an alternate version of the 1980s, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's... Um, uh, I won't say too much about it, but what I've been telling people is that it's kind of about... There's a time war, okay? But mm-hmm. it's also about what would happen if you could travel through time and meet your teenage self and have a conversation about how fucked up your high school friends are. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's uh, a project that I'm really excited about and this idea that I've been thinking about like pretty much since I was living in high... In, in, mm-hmm. Since I was in high school in the 1980s, I've been thinking about this novel. So um, <laughs> there's a little baggage attached to it. Um and, uh, and I'm also just now um, uh, placing with a publisher my next nonfiction book, which is about um, lost cities, uh, four lost cities, um, not fake cities, not like Atlantis. Mm-hmm. These are cities that were real cities that were abandoned, um, like Angkor and um, Cahokia, which mm-hmm. um, I recently found out that Robert Silverberg has written about. He and did. I've been teasing him about it. It's His book is on display at the, the museum at Cahokia. So, um, so anyway, so I'm trying to um, continue my quest to write nonfiction about science and fiction about mm-hmm. science, um, although time travel is not really science. No, um, I, I am going to talk to some physicists. <laughs> I am, like, Sean Carroll is a pal. I know he's going to, like, mm-hmm. talk to me about it. He's He has coached other writers through time travel, so <laughs> I will make it as accurate as possible, but it will also be, you know, it's time travel. It's time so travel. Yeah. You're going to have to throw me a bone on that one. Well, I mean, I am intrigued by the fact that time travel seems to, to I mean, it's always been around, but it seems to be heavily in the mix now, and I don't think it's just 
Doctor Who sort of in, in, in the ether, it really is something that comes up again, again and again. It is. There's a ton of amazing time travel stuff that's coming out now, um, both in you know TV and film and um, in fiction. And I think there's a really obvious answer, which is that we're at this really, um, mm. you know, we're at a crossroads in history. And, mm-hmm. you know, things are up in the air. We don't know what the fuck is going to happen. And we're also at the same time, as we face that future, we're having to rethink our history. And so I think that when you have these moments, these crossroads in history, like the whole timeline as we know it changes, you know, Mm -hmm. our sense of history changes, our future changes. So all of that stuff is up for grabs right now. And it's, you know, it's hard to ignore. It makes you want to talk about time travel. Mm. Of course, we all want to talk, travel to the other timeline too. <laughs> so. Which is even more unlikely. Yeah. And then <laughs> like how you're just like very like, well, no, that's not likely. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a t- time travel was around long before science fiction claimed it. I mean, you know, uh, a Christmas Carol yeah. is a time travel story, except the mechanism is ghosts. Um, Connecticut, connect, Yankee. Connecticut Yankee, the mechanism yeah. was getting yeah. hit on the head with a crowbar. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Edward Bellamy, you, you fall asleep. So basically, it wasn't until Wells put that word machine in his title mm-hmm. that we thought, okay, maybe there's a technical... Ma- mm-hmm. there's, there never was and there never was going to be, but science fiction claimed that theme, and now it's lost control of it. Now it's lost control of it because now you have Audrey Niffenegger and, and Lauren Bucus with The Shining. So anybody can use time travel. Laura Bukas is a science fiction writer. She's allowed to use time travel. <laughs> Shining Girls is not a science fiction but, novel. But Zeus said he was. No, yeah. Oh, yeah. The first two were, yeah. Okay. She's got cred. Writing one thing that's not science fiction doesn't, like, erase you. <laughs> I'm not saying she wasn't a science fiction writer. I'm saying she's not. I said that's not a science fiction novel. Oh. It's, it's, a, it's a damned house that moves back and forward in time, so a serial killer. Maybe it's just a time machine that you don't understand. Oh. Look, we were. I was going to say we're about at the end of the hour, and yeah. I realized that just to save your credibility, we probably should wind up here. We're going to revisit this topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look forward to like your, I look forward to your conversation with Lauren Bucus about this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, we'll, yeah. we'll start with you. I heard you know the science. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, though, thank you so very yeah. much for making this time. It's been enormous fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now I'm going to be anxious about whether I'm part of a generation or not so thank you for that (laughs) okay well until then thank you again and until then this has been the Coon Street Podcast